I am lactose intolerant. I just discovered this recently. I guess it's been a couple years now. I think I have actually always been lactose intolerant, but I didn't really want to believe it for a good portion of my life because I love ice cream, whipped cream, heavy cream. Some people put milk in their coffee. Some people put half and half in their coffee. If I was going to add something to my coffee, which I like black, but if I was going to add something, it would be heavy whipping cream, you know, like the good stuff. I like the good stuff. Now, Jen is gracious, and since we've discovered this, and since I decided to quit punishing my family with uh, lactose, uh, she has decided to uh, try to bring in some alternatives. But let's face some facts. Let's, let's, let's just look reality dead in the eye and admit something. Those alternatives are not as good as the real thing. Cashew ice cream. Yeah, I don't even need to finish that, right? I mean, you just know it's not going to be as good. Soy milk ice cream? No. Just anything that is trying to imitate the real thing. And there's so many different imitation milks now, right? You got soy milk, almond milk, coconut milk, oat milk, all of those I guess is better than pouring water on your cereal, but still not as good as the real thing. It's just an imitation, a cheap imitation. Last week we started to look at how Satan is a deceiver. He was a deceiver from the start. This week we'll be looking at how he is a cheap imitation of the real thing. So open with me, if you will, to Revelation 12. We've been going through this series in Revelation. We've called it Hopeful, and we've titled it that because Revelation, amidst some of the confusion and everything else that people uh, have with Revelation, Revelation of all things should, be gi- should give us hope. It was written to give us hope. It was actually written to an original audience that suffered persecution to give them hope. There's a couple different ways you can read Revelation, and uh, theologians like to debate this. One of the ways is to look back and try to make it fit with history and say everything that happened in the book of Revelation was happening in that first century. And so it's a book that's given hope to the first century reader. Another way that, that some theologians like to read it is present day. And they look and they try to make everything fit into the present day, and they say that it's here to give us hope in this present day. A third way is people look towards the future and say it's not even for this time frame, it's for the future, and they're going to look at and see how everything will fit in the future, and it's to give future believers hope. I don't think it has to be an either-or here. I think it's all three. The original audience understood the book. The original audience knew what was meant in the book, And the original audience gained hope. But that doesn't mean we can just write everything off and say it doesn't apply today. It still applies today. And we can read it, we can study it, we can understand it, we can draw some principles from it, and we can gain hope from it. But that doesn't exclude the future as well. John is caught up in the first century and given a vision of the future that applies throughout history. So every Christian throughout history and the believers that go beyond should be able to read this, apply it to our lives, and gain hope from it. 
So with that in mind, let's read chapter 13. If you remember last week, sorry, one more thing. I see all your heads bow down. Bring them back up. One more thing. If you remember last week, we didn't include the very end of 17. Now, some of your translations actually start with the very end of, of 17 in verse 13. Some have 12, 18. Some just have this one part as 12, 17. We're going to include that in our reading today, and we're going to discuss it a little bit. So, we're going to start off with 12, 17, slash 18, slash 13.1, depending on which translation you have. So here we go. Backing it up to 12.17. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So we see here three different characters, and we'll call these characters the unholy trinity. So you've got the dragon that represents Satan, the deceiver. And then we've got the beast. 
And then we've got the second beast. We're going to talk a lot about these, but each one of them represent what's called the unholy trinity, a, a imitation, a cheap imitation of the holy trinity. So let's dive in and talk a little bit more about it. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So some of your translations will have this as 1217b. Some of it will be 1218. Some of them will be 13.1. And we need to discover this a little bit. Uh, the reason why, once again, I always like to say that the chapters and verses are not inspired. When we talk about the Word of God, the Bible being inspired, we talk about the actual words. We don't necessarily talk about the translation. So in the original Greek, God inspired John. He gives him this revelation and then inspires him in such a way that he records it in the original manuscript. Now, all of the copies of that original manuscript are not inspired. And the translation of that original manuscript, or a translation, I should say, of the copies of that original manuscript, are not inspired. But that doesn't mean that we can't trust it. We can still trust them. So what's going on here? How come some of your translations, first of all, have different numbering? Well, we've already discussed. Those numbers are not inspired. Man came along later on and said, hey, we need to make some sense of this. In order to have quick reference points, let's break these down into verses and chapters. There was some disagreement on where this should be put. So that's number one, but number two, some of your translations, and in particular, if it comes from what I call the King James translation, if it comes from that lineage, then it will say, I stood on the sand of the sea. So why do some of your translations say, I stood on the sand of the sea, and some say, he stood on the sand of the sea? Well, this comes down to uh, lineage, biblical lineage. So as we are talking about, those copies of copies don't, aren't, I should say, are not inspired. So what happened here is we've got, you know, if you've got the original, let's say the original is written in Patmos. We know that because John wrote it in Patmos. And then he sends it out, right? And he sends out maybe seven copies to seven different churches. Well, those seven different churches make different copies, and they start getting sent out. And they're seen as inspired, and they are seen as uh, beneficial to Christians. They're seen as part of the canon, so they are putting them in with the rest of the New Testament, and it starts to spread to Rome, and in Rome they start putting this together and they start making copies. Well, throughout that you'll see different lineages. The King James translation, which is also the lineage for the New King James translation, comes from this Roman lineage, so all these copies get made at Rome, and then they start filtering through what's called the Byzantine line, and eventually boil down to the King James translation. Now, this is one line coming off of many lines. At some point, some scribe somewhere thought, I should say this, this line is also older, meaning it has a, I should say newer, meaning it has a later date. So if you look at a lot of these copies, they're closer to like 5th, 6th century. The King James puts more weight on this line. And so at some point, some scribe says, well, this doesn't really fit in the translation. He stood on the sand of the sea. And then you see in 13.1, and I saw a beast. Well, is, it doesn't make sense that he stood on and I saw. So they just take this stood, which is in the older manuscripts, a third person 
which would be he stood. The newer manuscripts are a first person, which is I stood. And so at some point, it gets switched over from he stood to I stood, and it follows this lineage and eventually boils down to our King James. Most of our other translations, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, uh, the HCSB, the NET, you getting the point? Most of these other translations take a wider range of lineage to build their translation. So what they do, instead of just following the, the line that boils down to the King James, they look at the Eastern lines as well. And these lines have older manuscripts. What means is that they're an earlier date. So we're looking at manuscripts that could be dated into the second and third century. They're a couple hundred years older, and all of those manuscripts that they give weight to have it as a third person, meaning he stood on the sand of the sea. So that's, that clears up that. Hopefully I cleared that up for you. That's why I follow the he stood on the sand of the sea. Not only that, but I think it makes, makes better sense in the context. The word here is estathane, to stand. So we already talked about how the earlier manuscripts are third person. Later, the first century King James, based on a specific lineage that gives weight to the later manuscripts. But I also think when we look at the context of 13.1, I, being John, saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now, I think John sees this, the dragon standing on the, on the sand of the sea, and why is he doing that? Why is the beast standing? If we remember last week, he was defeated. He had three defeats. He was first defeated in heaven, and then he wanted to devour Israel, or the, the Israel that was going to born a son, and he was defeated there, and then he wanted to kill Israel, and he was defeated there, and so he switches his wrath from Israel to on Israel's child, who are the believers. So anyone that's put their faith and trust in Christ, the bee, or sorry, the dragon, Satan, is going to inflict his wrath. And so what is he doing here? He is standing at the sand of the sea, and he is summoning this beast that he will use to inflict wrath on believers. I think that's what's going on there, and I think that's why the context also gives us a clue on why it is not I stood on the sand of the sea, but he that stood on the sand of the sea, he being Satan, summoning his beast in which he will inflict wrath. 13, the rest of 13, is how he's going to inflict this wrath. So we're going to see an unholy trinity that will inflict wrath on all believers of that time. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So here we see him, he's, he's summoning, Satan is summoning this beast. The beast is going to rise, and then we're going to get a description. Some people want to put all of this description together as a whole and make a picture of a beast. I think we're actually missing the point. As he's rising out of the sea, we should picture it as being uncovered one section at a time, which is going to give us some symbolism here, all right? So, out, rising out of the sea with ten horns. So first we picture the ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. If you'll notice, this is very similar to the dragon. So when we first saw the dragon, there is a description that's very similar, and it's showing unity between the beast and the dragon. So we're going to see that throughout chapter 13. Just as there is unity in the Trinity, three persons, one Godhead, unified, 
together, we're going to see that unity with the unholy trinity as well. So he's rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven diadems, with ten diadems on its horns. Now the major difference is the dragon had the diadems on his head, symbolizing that Satan was trying to usurp God's authority. Here, the diadems are on the horns, and this is symbolic for its military power. Horns are uh, symbolic for, for military might. The diadems being on his horns show that this beast is going to be a military strong arm of the dragon. So we're going to see a military strong arm later on when we get into the second beast. We'll see a religious leader. All right? So we'll have Satan, we'll have a military strong arm, and we'll have a religious leader. And blasphemous names written on his head. Blasphemy is to claim to be deity or to slander someone, or to slander in particular God. But in particular, it means to claim to be deity. So these names represent his claim. Once again, Satan is trying to usurp God's authority. This beast that represents Satan will also try to usurp God's position, trying to claim that he is the ruler he is the creator. He is the one that we should be submitting our lives to. Blasphemous names written on his heads. And the, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. Now this is a reference back to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there are four beasts that represent four different kingdoms. Here we only have three beasts, but the point is that he is representing all nations that are rebelling against God. Whereas Daniel 7 is going to give us th or four different nations that are rebelling against God, four different nations that Israel will have to live through, here it represents all nations that will rebel against God. And to it, the dragon gave his power. So there are three things that the dragon, Satan, are going to give to this beast. Number one is his power. His ability to deceive and to influence. So this beast, who is actually a person, is going to have the ability of Satan to deceive and to influence. Right now we're living through some culture wars. And no matter what side of the culture wars you are on, you believe the other side is really good at deceiving and influencing. You haven't seen anything yet. This beast will have the ability of Satan to deceive and to influence. And his throne, so he's given him his power, he's given him his throne. That is his position and his status and great authority. So he's giving him his dominion. He's going to give him his ability to deceive and he's going to give him his dominion. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. This is a cheap imitation of Christ. Christ was mortally wounded. He died. And he rose again. And he ascended to heaven. This beast, what's interesting here, is that it only seems to have a mortal wound. It's not necessarily a mortal wound. It only looks bad. It makes me think of that night and uh, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the movie. It is but a flesh wound. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Was that? Holy the Holy Grail. Thank you. I can always count on Anthony to, to give me the movie references. It is but a flesh wound. 
but it looks real. It says but a flesh wound, but it looks like it's a mortal wound. It's not really. He doesn't actually have the power of Christ, but he wants to imitate it. He's a cheap knockoff of who Christ is. But the whole world is going to be tricked, and and we see the result with that and in verse 3. So he has a, a mortal wound that was healed. It seemed to be a mortal wound. It's going to be healed. And the whole earth, this is the result, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So they're in awe, and they follow him. Now contrast that with what happened with Christ. Now don't get me wrong. There is a good portion of people that have decided to follow Christ. That see the sign of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And even to this day, even though we can't witness Christ in the flesh, we look at the historical evidences and we say, this makes sense. This adds up. How many journalists or researchers thought they could go out and disprove Christ, and they were going to do it like a courtroom hearing. They thought, you know what, I will disprove the existence of Christ, and and definitely I will be able to disprove that he ever rose from the dead. And almost every single one of them that go through that process end up putting their faith and trust in Christ, because the evidence is so overwhelming. One of my favorite uh, scholars to pick on is Bart Ehrman. Now, I don't actually pick on him, Uh, But I I love to use him as a resource because he is an atheist who is one of the leading scholars on New Testament theology. Now that's kind of funny, isn't it? An atheist who decided to dedicate his life to studying the New Testament. But here's the conclusion that he's drawn. Now he believes that because he is a historian, uh, historians have to follow the best evidence And uh, miracles, by definition, absolutely can't happen. Therefore, he writes off any idea of a miracle. He says, miracles can't happen. I can't decide that Jesus rose from the dead. That would be a miracle. So it couldn't have happened. But he knows the New Testament, and he knows the evidence so much that what he says is, the apostles and those who were following Jesus that saw him in the flesh believed it. You can't explain what happened with the new church, with the early church, other than they believed that they saw a risen Jesus. They had to have believed it. But he doesn't believe in miracles, so he says that they must have just had a mass hallucination. Right? They just all had this big vision together because he doesn't believe in miracles. But you see, the evidence is overwhelming. And yet, people still don't want to believe. One of my seminary professors would always hammer in our heads, disbelief is a result of rebellion, not confusion. And I think we see this clearly here in this passage. Disbelief is a result of rebellion, not confusion. It is, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus rose from the dead, yet people refuse to believe it. But here we have the beast who only seemed to have a mortal wound. It wasn't real, and yet was convincing enough that he convinced the world that he rose from the dead, and what is the result? That they marveled and they followed him. Part of it is the promise that the beast and Satan make versus what the promise that Jesus makes. The beast and Satan make a promise that you can be your own God. You can be the one that calls the shots. 
You don't have to submit to anyone's authority. And as a result, even if the evidence is smacking them in the face, people decide that they would much rather follow the beast than Jesus, who says, if you really want to live, you must die to yourself. I'm going to give you parameters. Because I'm the creator of the world, I'm going to give you parameters. And this is, if you truly want to be happy, these are the parameters that you have to live by. If you really want joy in your life, follow what, I, what God has taught in Scripture. But so many people don't want to follow what God has. They don't want to follow the parameters. And so they say, no. I want freedom from your laws. I want freedom from how you've created the world. I want to be my own God. I would much rather put my faith and trust in the beast than in Christ. So this is a cheap imitation, and we'll see that this cheap imitation keeps going. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. So here we see it again, that, that they followed him, and they're submitting their lives to him because of his promises, because... He has deceived them, right? Who, and then they say, who is like the beast? And who can fight against this? And this is an affront to Jesus. This is a direct assault on Jesus. The one who really did rise from the dead. The one who died for your sins and rose again. They're saying, who is like the beast? No one else can do this. It's amazing. And not only that, but who can fight against it? The beast will win every fight, is what they believe. Five through seven centers around the word didomai. Didomai is a divine passive, and we'll read it over and over again. In fact, this week you should read through 12 and 13 and look for how many times you can find didomai, which would be translated as was given, was allowed, and so we see this divine passive, in particular through 5 through 7, and it's meaning God allowed this thing to happen. So as we read through here, and we read these cheap imitations of Christ, and what the beast is going to do, we should take note that it is God who is allowing this to happen. God is allowing Satan to rebel. God has allowed you to rebel God has allowed man to rebel, which might lead us to the question, why has God allowed it? And I think God, once again, if we look back at Revelation, it, we can kind of see a courtroom. And God is making a case. The case God is making, uh, before he brings about his final judgment, is that this is what you deserve. For all of humanity that will end up rebelling against God, shaking their fist against God, and end up spending eternity in hell, God is making the case. And the case is, this is what you deserve. I made it clear to you your depravity. I made it clear to you how horrible things would be. I made it clear. We looked back in the fifth and sixth trumpets, which were also called the woes, where he unleashes, literally unleashes hell on earth, and demons go around stinging humans so much so that they beg to die, and yet God won't allow them. That's only a glimpse of what eternity separated from God will be like. And so God is laying out the case. He's allowing the rebellion to lay out the case to say, hey, 
I gave you every opportunity. You can't say you didn't read the fine print. You got every opportunity to repent, and yet you continued to follow the cheap imitation. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what God is doing here. That is why God is allowing it. So God is allowing Satan to rebel, but it's important for us to note that he is allowing it. Satan is trying to usurp God's authority. He's trying to claim to be God. It's not that Satan has won the war. It's not that Satan has defeated Jesus. It's that God has allowed it to make a case. So, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, also three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to kill or conquer them. So this term conquer means to kill. So he's going to be allowed to continue to try to usurp God's authority. He's going to be allowed to slander God, to slander the saints. And not only that, but he's going to be allowed to conquer and kill believers. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language. So not only will he be allowed to do all of these things, but he'll also be allowed to be the first true world ruler. He will rule the world. This phrase, all authority over every tribe, people, and language and nation, is all-encompassing. He will become a world ruler. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. So everyone who has not put their faith and trust in Christ will end up submitting their lives and worshiping the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. So we need to take a pause here and talk a little bit about this term before. So the Greek word is apo. Apo, everywhere else in the New Testament, is translated as sense or from. This is the one place, and many of your translations will actually translate it as sense or from. This is the one place where the ESV actually translates it before. The, The word before in Greek is actually pro. So before and this has quite a bit of significance here because if your name was written before the foundation of the world then you have a little bit of a Calvinistic leaning here now I'm not arguing against Calvinism per se at this point all right what I am saying is that if you are a Calvinist that's okay you're welcome here our church's official stance we're not neither Calvinist nor Arminian we don't actually have an official stance. What we ask is unity. A lot of, I have very good friends that are Calvinists, five-point Calvinists, that I love dearly. They're godly men. I disagree with them. I also have very dear friends that are godly men, that I love, that are far on the other side of the spectrum. I'd call them what the term is open theists. I disagree with them. So at this church, we are neither Calvinist nor Arminian, But what we ask is that we don't make this the focal point 
of theology. So, all that to say, if you're a Calvinist and you want to argue with me with Calvinism, don't use this scripture. There's plenty of other places you can go. Don't use this one. Because the word before is actually a po, meaning that it wasn't necessarily written before the foundations of the world, but if you look at it, a po meaning from, that would, that would give us the idea that at some point after the creation of the world, names were added to the book of life. Now we could argue about when that, was, when that occurred. Some people would say it's still occurring. As you put your faith and trust in Christ, your name is added to the book of life. That's another conversation. But here we know that it was from since the creation of the world. So at some point after the creation of the world, names were added to the book of life of the Lamb. That also gets us off the actual point, and the point is the book of life. Now, in those days, cities would have a book of citizenship. So if you were a citizen of a city, your name was added to a book. As you moved away, your name would be erased. So the idea here is that citizens of heaven will not worship the beast. Citizens of heaven know who their ruler is. Citizens of heaven know who their king is. Their king is God. Their king is Jesus. We worship the the holy trinity, not the unholy trinity. That's the point that he's really getting at. Who was slain? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So 9 through 10 is an appeal to faithfulness. So he's addressing now, we've talked about the wrath that is going to be unleashed. How, the, how Satan is going to do it as he summons his beast. And then he gives us an appeal to faithfulness before he introduces the second beast. This appeal, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Wow, that fills us with hope, doesn't it? Man, such encouraging words. So why would we call this an appeal for faith? He says, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. And the idea is, look, things are going to get tough. You think it's tough now, things are only going to get more difficult. He was writing this during a time of persecution. We here in America experience quite a bit of freedom. But we should understand that this is actually very unique for Christians. The amount of freedom we experience is unique. All over the world, there are Christians that are being persecuted, that are being killed, that are being tortured for their faith. We need to understand that it will happen here. It hasn't yet, but it is coming down the pipeline. So he's giving us encouragement, and the encouragement isn't that we will win physically. That's not the encouragement here. It wasn't the encouragement for the original audience, and it's not the encouragement for the audience during the tribulation. The idea in the tribulation is you will physically lose. There's no amount of army you can mount to defeat the Antichrist. In fact, that's not even where our war exists. Not in the physical world but in the spiritual world. You won't physically defeat the Antichrist. In fact, if you try, you'll be taken captive and you'll be slain by the sword. Whether you try or whether you don't try to physically defeat him. So what's the point? The point is to remain faithful to God. Because in the end, he wins. 
We may die. And we see over and over again in the book of Revelation that losing your life for Christ's sake is a real victory. That to remain faithful. But that leaves us with another question. What do we remain faithful to? Do we remain faithful to a bunch of religious regulations? Do you remain faithful to hymns? Do you remain faithful to pews? What do you remain faithful to? The encouragement is to remain faithful to the gospel. Remain faithful that God's word is true, and you can stand in that truth. It's not saying that we need to remain faithful to a bunch of religious ceremony. It's saying remain faithful to the one true God and his word. And as you remain faithful to that, persecution will come. But in the end, Jesus is victorious. You can remain faithful, even in torture. Because you know that in the end, Jesus is victorious. That is the encouragement for the endurance and faith of the saints. It's not that you are promised happiness. It's not that you're promised a comfortable life. It's not that you're promised that you would get everything that you've ever desired in life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It is almost an assurance that you're going to live a difficult life, that you're going to live in the midst of persecution. But it's knowing that in the end, Jesus is victorious. And what's amazing about that is you can have joy in the midst of persecution. You can have joy as you're taken away. You can even have joy as you are slain with the sword. Because you know that in the end, Jesus is victorious. So, that's not the end. The end is that he saw another beast rising out of the earth. So we saw the first beast rising out of the ocean. The next beast is going to rise out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. Once again, this resembles Christ, right? So all the way back in chapter 5, we see a lamb with two horns. This is going to be, it's going to have two horns like a lamb. It's just a cheap imitation. It's not the real lamb. It's a false prophet. And it spoke like a dragon. So we are going to see... Once again, this isn't just a historic event, and it's not just a future event. This is a description of a lot of false prophets. Many false prophets will arise. This is going to be the prototype, the the false prophets that every other false prophet wish they could be. But we'll see that the same tactic happens with all false prophets. So how do we identify a false prophet? Number one is how it speaks. Though it had two horns like a lamb, and it imitates Christ, and it tries to usurp the authority of Christ, it's going to speak like a dragon. Now, a dragon was thought of as deceitful and a vile creature. 
Well, that's difficult to, uh, to discern, right? Boy, false prophets are really good at being full of deceit. That's why we have to be so rooted in Scripture that we can identify the deceitfulness of the false prophet. How do you identify a falsehood? It's by being so rooted in the truth that you can identify it. So, that's the first place. The second one is that it exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So the second part is, it will make you worship something that is not God. False prophets have bear fruit that is not with the fruit of the Spirit. Its language is deceitful, but it's also vile. It is destructive. It is divisive. The second part of a false prophet is that it worships something other than God. Now, that thing that it worships is often itself. That's one of the best ways to recognize a false prophet. Who is he really worshiping? Is he trying to glorify himself and develop his own little kingdom? Or is he worshiping God and giving glory to God? So he makes its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed, and it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. So I think that's our third one. And it's very similar to the next one, or to the, to the second one, is that it's doing it all for its own glory. A false prophet does things for his own glory. So he's doing all of these signs in front of people so that they would worship him. And then he passes that worship on to the first beast. But we see that he performs signs, even making fire come down from heaven. That is a cheap imitation of what the two witnesses did. And not just the two witnesses, but all of these signs are cheap imitations from the actual prophets of God. So going all the way back to Moses, on through to the two witnesses that we saw in chapter 11, these are cheap imitations of actual signs. They are trying to authenticate this claim. A sign throughout, throughout the Bible, signs were given over to prophets to authenticate a claim. So Moses had these signs as he goes up to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Mo Pharaoh's going to have a question that all of us, I think, would have. Why should I let your people go? Give me a sign. Authenticate your claim that you're from God. Who is this Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. Authenticate it. And so what does Moses do? He brings in plagues that authenticate that claim. Elijah is a prophet from God. He takes on Jezebel. But what is Jezebel going to do? The same thing all of us would do if someone came up to us saying, I'm a prophet of God. Authenticate your claim. Come on, I'm not going to believe anybody that just walks up and says I'm a prophet. By the way, if you do believe anybody that walks up and says they're a prophet, I have some things I want to sell you. <laughs> but you don't. You don't just believe it. You want some authentication. That's what signs were all about. Jesus, on his, during his earthly ministry, produced signs to authenticate his claim. He had a God-sized claim that he was God in the flesh. So what does he do? He authenticates that claim, and he authenticates it through different signs. And the, the single most important sign was that he rose from the dead. Here we see signs trying to authenticate these claims, but once again, they're just imitations. They're not the real thing. And by the signs that it 
that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. The, once again, this, this phrase, dwell on earth, is, uh, we could say earth dwellers, and it represents those who are not believing. So there are two categories, those who believe, who are citizens of heaven, and those who don't believe in Christ, and those are earth dwellers, citizens of the earth, who worship the beast. To the image of the beast, so they, and it was allowed to give breath, sorry, let me back up. Dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword. So they're going to build this image up, and it was allowed to give breath. Once again, that is a reference back to the two witnesses that where God breathed life into them. This beast was allowed to breathe life into the image of the beast. So once again, it's an imitation of God's true prophets. So that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. So we've got two things that it's going to cause. We're not entirely sure how it's going to cause these things. But what we do know is that the beast, with the beast, you will either willingly worship it, you will be forced to worship it, or you will be killed by it. Those are your three options with this second beast that is the religious side of the beasts. Also, sorry, so it's going to cause every person, so that both great, rich, poor, free, slave, small, that encompasses all of humanity. So every single person is going to be forced into one of these three things. To worship it, willingly, to be forced to worship it, or to be, to be killed by it. Those are the three things all of humanity is going to be forced with. And what is it going to cause those who are unbelievers who worship it to be marked on the right hand or the forehead? This signifies rejection of a former alliance or loyalty and acceptance of ownership. So if a, if a slave was sold in Roman times, when he was sold, he would get a mark of his new slave owner on his right hand or on his forehead. So this is to signify that every person who decides to worship the beast no longer belongs even to themselves, but they belong to the beast. They are the property of the beast. And the result, or what, one of the main pressures for this is that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark. That's going to be a huge amount of pressure. It's one of the reasons why we need to be in community. Because as persecution comes down the pipeline, there will be a time when the pressure is so intense that if you're doing this on your own, if you're living as a Christian out there on your own, and you're not plugged into community, you will cave to the pressure. You need to be surrounded by other Christians that are encouraging you, and not just encouraging you, but ready to support you. As we see persecution ramp up, People will begin to lose their job for their faith. And as a believing community, we need to be prepared to help take that on. As someone loses their job, we need to be prepared to chip in. Otherwise, the pressure is going to mount. We will divide. And the people who are persecuting will win. So we need to be prepared. 
That's just for us. This is going to be in the future. That no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This, uh, so this calls for wisdom. We shouldn't be too hasty. Some people are quick to try to point out who this person is, who the Antichrist is. Jews typically used what's called gemetria, which is assigning uh, numerical values to letters and to numbers. And so a lot, of, uh, a lot of theologians have kind of walked through the uh, Hebrew alphabet, and with 666, they uh, think that they've pinpointed that this name was narrow. Now, this is definitely not narrow. Narrow was, di- was died. Nero was dead. He died, was dead, for about 30 years. John doesn't mean that Nero is the Antichrist. We don't know who the Antichrist is going to be. If these theologians are correct, and it is a reference to Nero, what, this is, what he's getting at is that Nero was the prototype for Antichrist. Meaning Nero forced people to worship him. You were, bo- you, you were forced into three options. You either worshipped Nero willingly, or you bent your knee and was forced to, or you died. So if that is correct, and Nero is who, who this number represents, then the wisdom that needs to be discerned, or used, I should say, is when the Antichrist does come, when the false prophet who claims the authority and usurps, tries to usurp the authority of God does come, he will look like Nero. And we need to use wisdom to discern anyone who is a false prophet, that although they have horns like the lamb, they speak like a dragon. They do things for their own glory, and they try to force you to worship and submit your life to anything other than God. Satan is a deceiver from the beginning. Even what he does when his deception is at full is just a cheap imitation of what God has to offer. Satan offers freedom, that you can be your own God, that you don't have to bow down to anyone, but in the end, the reality is what he actually gives is hurt and pain and slavery to him. God also offers freedom. But he doesn't say that you can be your own God. He says if you really want freedom, if you really want to be free from all those things that control you, First, you must die to yourself. And as you put your faith and trust in God, when you recognize that you have sinned, that you have rebelled, and as a result of your rebellion, you're a slave to sin, and you're trapped in that sin, and you you recognize that Christ has paid the price for that sin, and you put your faith and trust in Him, He frees you from sin. Satan offers happiness that results in pain, Christ offers you to die to yourself. 
And the amazing thing is, when you follow Christ and you die to yourself, God produces joy in your life. And you'll experience more joy than you could ever imagine, even in the midst of trial and persecution. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? The way that John lays this out, nobody is neutral. You are either sealed by Satan, meaning Satan owns you, or you are sealed by Christ, meaning you willingly sold yourself to Christ. You willingly said, God, I no longer want to be master of my own life. I give myself to you. So who owns you? Is it a cheap imitation? Or is it the real thing? Dear Lord, we recognize that deception runs deep. And there are people everywhere that have been deceived and are running with it. And even us, Lord, have been deceived at times. And we still can be deceived. And we pray that we would be so rooted and grounded in Your Word that we would see through the deception. And Lord, we thank You for giving us an out. That we don't have to be owned by Satan. That we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. But we can be free in You. And in that freedom, we can have true joy. In Your name we pray. Amen.